We welcome all our uh, audiences to this very exciting conversation organized by the University of Ghana School of Law for the Law in Crisis or Election Series. My name is Bernard Avle. I host uh, the City Breakfast Show on radio and the point of view on television for City FM. Um, the Law in Crisis, I believe, is a nice play on words. Whether it is law that is in crisis or whether we are practicing law in crisis, <laughs> I'm sure my panelists will be in a better position to talk about this. But this is part of a series of conversations being organized by the school to delve into key issues that affect uh, good governance and law in Ghana. And I have a very exciting panel who would be delving into a conversation that a lot of people feel, um, I won't say it's overflowed, but it's certainly not a new conversation. Uh, we are talking about campaign financing and we, we welcome all of you to the session. We're, we're trying to answer a few key questions about why is campaign financing even important at this time? Ghana is four months to an election. Yeah. What is wrong with Ghana's existing campaign financing model? We also want to look at how do we address these challenges? What are the options for public financing of both political parties and their campaigns? And then we'll also discuss pathways for reform. I'm very excited about my panel. I have a, a four-person panel, and uh, they are Dr. Daniel Apia, is a lecturer at the University of Ghana Business School. Doc has researched the topic with a number of relevant publications, and I, I saw one published in collaboration with two other lecturers done by the IGC, International Growth Center, very nicely written article. And Doc, we welcome you to the panel. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. We're also privileged to have uh, Dr. Benjamin Kumbo, who's a former member of parliament, former minister for high-level portfolios like Defense, Interior, and AG's department. And Doc, before he joined politics, was working in civil society and policy work. And he's now also teaching. So Doc will bring us both a mm. practical political perspective and academic perspective and also civil society perspective. Dr. Kumbo, great to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Louis Carroll Donko, uh, works with the SDG's office of the office of the president, where she drives very important policy in sus sustainable development goals. But Doc also took a shot at elections, ran for the primaries at Tapu Pankrano, and although did not win, learned some useful lessons she will share with us from both perspectives. Dr. Carroll, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Bernard. And last but certainly not least, we have Seth Ashiabo, who will be speaking to a cross-regional uh, to cross regional campaign financing practices because she's based in Washington, D.C. She has more like a bird's eye view of what's happening in various parts of the world and she will help us tie the loose ends. Seth, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. It's uh, good to be back in Ghana, even if it's only virtually. <laughs> <laughs> we, we look forward to having you when the borders open. Thank you. <laughs> so... As a journalist who is not a political scientist, a few things caught my attention by way of introduction. Mm. Why we chose campaign financing and not political party financing. I, I thought that was interesting because maybe campaign is broader in the sense that we have non-political or non-partisan people. For example, we have independent candidates who are not yeah. political parties and they are campaigning. So maybe that's why yeah. campaign financing can be broader. But in a sense, campaign financing can also be a subset of political party financing yeah. because political parties do more than campaign, right? They educate, they mobilize, and they make mm -hmm. a lot of noise. 
So I'm not here to, to do a discussion, but I thought it was an interesting choice to use campaign. But because Ghana is very close to an election, I think campaign financing works. The other key opening thought I'll pass before the questions is, it's very clear that the way our politics is financed has an inimical effect on the delivery of good governance in a democracy because of the opacity and the lack of clarity of some of the rules and the application. I think Elvis Ankara quoted it nicely in a recent interview where he says <laughs> yeah. that, um, yeah. check all the corruption related cases from boss to whatever, I'm quoting him in an interview. It yeah. is linked to campaign financing. There is always a financer there. Ask yourself which sensible person will sign or agree to this deal. It is because our hands are tied, unquote. Elvis is the director of elections for the NDC. So he knows what he's talking about. So that, that seems to be the context that because the rules are not clear and also even if they are clear, they are not applied fairly, the democracy we have can't really deliver the development we want. Some even think that this contributes to the winner-takes-all politics. A lot of people also think that this contributes to personal debt and the increasing cost of politics. Again, a nice study shows that we have almost $85,000 a primary. This was a research done not too long ago. So this is generally the context. So first thought for my panelists would be so, in terms of the rules that we have governing political party or campaign financing, are the rules the problem? And, and why, are, why do we seem to be having a challenge? Let me start with Dr. Ben Kumbo. You've been in this space for a long time. Could the problem be with the law that regulates campaign financing, Dr. Kumbo? Well, I guess to a very limited extent, Ghana really doesn't have a deficit in terms of regulations and laws. Our situation in Ghana seems to be that anytime a political law, socioeconomic problem raises its hair, we pass a law. Yeah. But it seems to be making people feel fine with law. So that should not be a challenge, despite the fact that I thought we could have gone a further mile in actually coming out with a specific legislation on campaign financing or financing of political parties. To tack it under the Political Parties Act creates quite some difficulties and challenges in terms of legal footprint. But I guess that even that Act 574 provides a minimum if taken together with Article 55, linking it up with Article 94, linking that up with uh, PNDC Law 284. There is a series of all these things that when put and read together, actually address the issue. So we certainly do not lack the appropriate regulatory framework. The problem seems to be not too much about law, but too much about us. And I think okay. that is a very significant one. Let me give you a very, very captivating summary of what the International Foundation for Electoral Systems captured. And I believe it indicates clearly what we are dealing with. It says that public corruption is like a thread that if pulled, can undermine the entire democratic tapestry. For example, corrupt campaign spending can lead to kickbacks in public procurement which may in turn be left unchecked if the judiciary is compromised. Crisis situations magnify existing corruption vulnerabilities and create new opportunities for personal or political gain. This for me is a summary of how you locate the context of campaign financing or political party financing 
in a situation of crisis that we find ourselves. And I wow. think it captures the essence of it. But the history of political parties generally in Africa and Ghana no being an exception, seems to still be living in the age of the political African political party of the 1950s. And one of the major studies that was carried out by the Conrad Adenauer Foundation as far back as 18 years, 2007, registered and even predicted what we now seems to be experiencing in Ghana that we are referring to. It drew a number of very interesting conclusions. And if you indulge me, I'll just highlight one or two of them. It says that funding from traditional sources of donations, contribution from MPs, members, deals, and other sources has proved over the years to be inadequate for political parties. And therefore, the party that wins executive power uses its control to acquire state resources in forms of slush funds, which it actually uses to conduct its electoral activities. In addition, the pervasive poverty in the country makes it very difficult for ordinary people to contribute or donate to their parties. The net effect of all this, that study actually concludes that the ultimate result will be that democratic politics will be turned into competition for wealth and power to serve the interests of groups and individuals rather than an exercise of power for the public good. This shows that as far back as 18 years, predictions about where our campaign financing will find us in 2020 were already anticipated. And many, many more other people have published about this aspect of campaign financing. And locating it within the wider political, I'll give a brief summary, always resulting to science where social science fails me, that if you see transformation of energy and you look at its context within political party financing, it's about acquiring the economic power, converting it into political power, converting it into social power, and using it within a cycle back into acquiring political power. That is where the political party actually sits as a vector that makes this chain unbreakable. And if we do not break this type of chain in terms of the transformation of using financial resources to acquire all these other forms of power, then we are going to be where we are. Mm. Wow, thank you for your introductory thoughts. So wow. even though you were a lawyer, you seem to say that we shouldn't just blame the laws. It's more the way we behave. And then you've contextualized it nicely. Uh, let me bring in um, Dr. Apia. Doc, I still want to go to the law because yeah. in the uh, Westminster Foundation for Democracy paper, yeah. they, they, they trace the problem today to the passage of PNDC Law 281. And if you permit me to quote, they say, the passage of the political party's law, PNDC Law 281, was part of the regime's strategy to manipulate the transition by denying the opposition party's resources. And then they go on in the next page, five, to say that unlike in established liberal democracies, where citizen participation in politics is often fostered by progressive campaign financing laws and the availability of state funding quote, and that emphasis is mine, in many emerging democracies like Ghana, there are both overt and covert limitations to effective popular participation in politics. 
So essentially, they're saying that our campaign finance laws, rooted in PNC Law 281, is retrogressive, and it limits public participation. And they trace this to the problems we are facing today. Would you go as far as agree with this? What are your opening thoughts on how the historical perspective and laws have affected where we are with campaign finance? Right, uh, Bernard, thank you very much. Uh, I agree with Dr. Kumbo uh, that the problem that we have about campaign finance is not uh, a problem of lack or the absence of laws. The problem is one of enforcement. And the first time that we tried to uh, pass some laws to regulate campaign financing in a broader context was in 1979, you know, uh, when uh, following the June 4th, 1979 uh, you know, revolutions. You know, that, that, that kind of revolution uh, uh, came about, uh, you know, with the notion that uh, corruption was uh, in the rampant in the society, so there was a need to deal with corruption. And one of the, of the laws that they passed concerned the financing of political parties. You know. And then uh, from 1979 to 1981, uh, the democratic uh, regime that came was overthrown. And then we had that long period of PNDC rule. That I, I'm coming to the, ninth, the, the PNDC law 281, which I mean, some have said that it is the genesis of the problem. And I don't think that that is the genesis of the problem. The 1979 law uh, placed a ceiling on how much individuals could actually contribute. And individuals could not contribute more than 1,000 cities. I think it will be today, maybe 10 cities. <laughs> you know, the old Ghana 1,000 cities. And so I struggle to now convert it. And then the, 1980, uh, the 1991 uh, law, uh, which is a PNDC 281, also re the fact that individuals could not contribute more than uh, 1,000 cities. In principle, all the parties at that time agreed that there was a need to regulate the amount of money that individuals could contribute. However, the disagreement had to do with how much individuals could contribute and the matter ended up in court and so from the uh, 1991 to 1992 when we made the new constitution uh and the 1992 constitution uh the rules that they put in there concerning the regulation of campaign finance now omitted how much individuals could contribute so between the 1991 to 1992 uh, looking at the kind of disagreements that came up among the political parties about how much individuals could contribute, I don't think that that was the main reason that, or that is the main reason why we are facing the current problems. Because it was just one year, and then all the parties at that time from 1991 to 1992 agreed that, yes, campaign financing should be regulated, but the question was how much? And then the opposition thought that 1,000 cities was just too small. So too small, but the question is how much exactly should individuals be allowed to contribute? And that debate has lingered on, on to date. And so the question about whether or not we should regulate campaign financing is one that all the political parties agree. But the crux of the matter, the bone of contention is how much exactly uh, should we uh, cap in terms of individual contributions? 
uh, you know. So I, 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 once again, I agree with Dr. Kumbo that it is not the absence of law. We have the rules uh, in the 1902 Constitution, the Political Parties Act of 2000 also uh, re-emphasizes the 281, the, the, the rules within the PNDC law 281. The only thing that is missing uh, from, the 90, from the 1922 Constitution and from the Political Parties Act of 2000 is the ceiling uh, concerning individual contributions and then also how much corporations and other organizations can contribute. Uh, if you take that one out, I think the rules come close to what we have in the United States uh, laying out who and who has got the right to contribute and then uh, how it should be done. The rules are not the problem. Is the way we practice that the issue is. Fantastic. Right. Thank you for introductory comments. Now, Dr. Lewis, because of your important work at the SDG office, I was looking at which of the 17 SDGs <laughs> most closely approximates to the issue. And I don't know, I think I saw peace, justice, and strong institutions and possibly reducing inequality. I couldn't really see a direct link between a specific SDG and what we are discussing, although I know almost all the SDGs are consequential to what we are discussing. Be that as it may, I do know you, do, you did politics on campus before you entered the national political terrain as well. What are your opening thoughts on what the rules say about campaign financing, Dr. Lewis Carroll? Okay, Bennett. Um, so, I mean, I think that, you know, uh, this issue of discussing campaign finance is very, very relevant. And it's relevant because we want to find out whether we want to have a democracy of best ideas or a democracy where, you know, whoever has the money, you know, is able to buy power. Yeah. And, you know, referring to my experiences back on campus and even, you know, currently, um, you know, when I was at the University of Ghana, yes, I did contest for uh, the SRC presidency. When I was at the University of Liverpool as well, I also contested for student officer uh, position. The difference between what happened at the University of Ghana and what happened at the University of Liverpool was about the kind of support that as students we receive. At the University of Ghana, for instance, you're supposed to raise your own money, you know, do every other thing yourself. And being a woman, uh, that was actually the, well, maybe I think that was the second time, because somebody told me that somewhere in 1980-something, you know, a woman also stood for elections at the University of Ghana. So, I mean, I had people tell me that, of course, University of Ghana is not ready for a woman. They're not going to vote for a woman. And there are nine other male contenders in the race. And so based on that, you know, if we, we sort of look at your chances, maybe you better off stepping down or you better off, you know, vicing somebody. And that was, you know, how the discussion and conversations were going. But at the University of Liverpool, all that I had to do was to present myself. I just had to come in with my ideas and to go and, you know, and then with the ability to be able to influence students or to campaign to students. Whereas at the University of Liverpool, it wasn't like that. You were burdened to be able to raise funds, you know, yourself. So at the University of Ghana, even though I was able to win the elections, I was able to win the elections at the University of Ghana, I had to raise, you know, the money myself. And if I had listened to, okay, you can't, you know, 
you're not going to win because there are nine men who are coming for more prominent holes and all of that. In, and you don't have the money to be able to do it. And these are the people who have to give you the money to be able to fund your campaign. And they are the ones asking you to step down. Then it means that you would have to sort of push what you can do aside, your best ideas aside, just so you know the person or the people that they are willing to invest in can occupy this space. And so in that regard, I mean, I think that this conversation is very, very important. And we having to regulate or find a framework around how we do campaign financing in Ghana is you know, equally relevant. What I actually also wanted to touch on was about you know, the experts, Dr. Apia and then uh, Dr. Kumbo said that we have enough laws. But from my layman's, you know, laywoman's perspective, I would have thought that we don't really have enough laws because I don't see that the framework is quite wide or, you know, varied. Because for instance, you know, um, I think the law is silent on co contribution limits. You know, do we have ceilings on amount of donations? Who can donate? How much can you donate? You know, expenditure limits and all of that. So I think that even if we think that, um, the laws are not limited, that we have enough framework to be able to, you know, uh, operate. I still think that we need to detail there are things or components of the law that we need to drill down to, which is, you know, around expenditure limits, you know, identity of donors and contribution limits. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Lewis Carroll. So I, you, you seem to be agreeing with my initial premise that the laws are not that clear or enough. In fact, a general mosquito is not the best person to quote here, but he says a law without enforcement is just an advice. And for those of who are international viewers, he is Ghana's uh, opposition party's general secretary. He, he is known for saying very interesting things. So he says a law without enforcement is only an advice. And with that, I want to come to Seth because your work with NDI, apart from the best IV you have in Africa, I know you Benin, DRC, Guinea, Kenya, Malawi, Sierra Leone, Togo, Uganda, Zimbabwe. So the whole ring, you, you know Africa very well. Now, uh, Dr. Kumbo and Dr. Apia seem to be saying, well, our laws are okay. It's the problem is not the laws. Are our laws as okay as we have been told? Or if you compare <laughs> us to all the places you've worked, you can say, Charlie, maybe there's a couple of things we need to look at. So, Seth, it, I think I want you to give me the final word on this whole history of our legal system around campaign financing, how Ghana compares to other countries. So you have the final word, Seth. Uh, so thank you so much. I think there were some interesting perspectives from um, the others who have gone um, before me. And I think I want to reinforce many of the points, but perhaps slightly disagree uh, with, with some of them. Um, and I want to start with uh, where you started, um, Bernard. And I think, you know, I mean, my personal preference is to talk about political financing because campaign financing is just a subset of that, right? And what happens during the campaign often links to a lot of, a lot of other, other things that happen um, outside, outside, the, the, um, outside the election period. And there are definitely a lot of countries who make a distinction between political financing and campaign financing. But I think one of the issues I've always had with that is, well, when does the campaign really start, right? In the case of Ghana, when do our political parties select their presidential candidates? 
and what does that mean about you know when the campaign um, first starts? So um, that's that's you know one one point of clarification I wanted to make. I think the second point I wanted to make was um, I think you know um, people often come to the issue of political financing because they are concerned about corruption. And there is clearly a link between political financing and corruption in pretty much every country of the world. Um, and it's also how I got interested in this uh, topic myself. But as um, I have continued to explore this issue and other aspects of democracy, I really come to see political financing as part of a much bigger conversation about what type of political parties and what type of political system we want. And this connects very much to the point that um, Dr. Dr. Uh, Louise, uh, Dr. Carroll was, was making. So in other words, do we want political parties who are there just because they have the money or they can mobilize the money? Do we want political parties who are inclusive of women who are inclusive of young people, who are inclusive of persons with disabilities and other marginalized groups. That's um, number one. And I think when you think about it that way, then the way we regulate political financing is really just one tool, not just for controlling everything we don't like, but for facilitating the kind of political parties and political system we want. Other tools in that toolbox are our electoral system registration requirements, if we have a, a quota and so forth. Of course, political financing regulations are also a tool for regulating um, or, or limiting um, political, political um, corruption. So, I mean, I, I, I prefer the, tool the toolbox approach because from my perspective, political financing should not just be about controlling everything we don't want to see, it should also be about facilitating or promoting the kinds of things that we do want to see. In terms of um, Ghana's um, current political party law, I think it has some of the strengths and weaknesses that we see in a lot of countries, not just in, um, on, the, on the African um, continent. So for example, um, my reading of the current political party law is that technically political parties have to report their uh, financial information, but candidates don't. That's a loophole. Another potential challenge is that uh, there is a brief reference that basically suggests that political parties who don't comply with the law can be deregistered by the election um, commission. And from my perspective, I think that that's potentially challenging from the perspective of the principle of proportionality. In other words, if a political party forgets, forgets, <laughs> I'm putting that in quotation marks, to report five CDs, does that mean they can be deregistered, right? And then I think we get into the um, challenges of um, enforcement, and I think some of those issues, and I think perhaps uh, Dr. Kumboy is uh, better qualified than I am to go into some of these details. The challenges that we see around the world range from um, regulations, in other words, who is actually responsible for um, prosecuting a political party that, has, that is suspected of violating the law. There are questions, and how does that process work? There are often questions around 
um, the resources available at the, um, at the disposal of the enforcement body. And that can range from what I call cash money to resources in terms of the kind of technical expertise required to really analyze. And then um, I know I'm going um, on a bit, so I'll just wrap up. I think the last point I will say is that we also have to remember the role that civil society, the media, and others can play in terms of shining a light on problematic behaviors. So um, a lot of countries make it a lot easier than Ghana does for civil society and others to access the information and to access the information in a way in which it makes it easier for them to analyze and compare to see what, whether what is reported is actually what is happening in practice. Wow. Thank you, Seth. This is great. I, I look forward to more interactions. So it's very clear that um, we are not all on the same page on some of the issues, but we are clear on some issues as well. That's good for discussion. I want to say we have 125 participants on the Zoom. We welcome all of you. We're looking forward to your questions. So please put them on the chat if you feel like you don't want to forget the question, or if you feel like if you raise your hand, we will not see you. We are also streaming on YouTube. So those of you who are watching on YouTube, we are monitoring as well. We'll be happy to hear your comments. So this is the Law in Crisis Election Series uh, conversation. My name is Bernard Avle, and I'm so happy with the panel, Dr. Kumbo, Dr. Luis Karodonko, Sefa Siabo, and Dr. Anela Pia. And we're discussing campaign financing or political party financing. Now, I want to be a bit philosophical and ask the second question. So is the campaign financing problem we are dealing with a consequence or the cause of the type of democracy we have. What I'm saying is that is the campaign or political party financing at the root of where we find ourselves in terms of what our fourth Republican democracy has done with us for the past 20 something years? Or is it just one of the fruits? So is it the root or the fruit? Is it the cause or the effect? Yes, this may sound philosophical, but Dr. Kumbo, you are, you are a philosopher too. So <laughs> I just want, because I, I need to situate it properly, whether this is just one of the consequences of a bigger problem somewhere else, or this is a key thorny issue that if you address a lot of the problems like corruption, winner takes all and things will be dealt with, if, if the question makes sense. So, so Dr. Kumbo, give it a shot. Is this a cause or effect? Yeah, basically, when you have social institutions and structures, they are not outside the wider social structure of the particular country. Definitely, as I listened very much to Seth, I understood quite clearly when you are doing a comparative analysis of political financing and sometimes the idea that there are generic principles that should cut across most jurisdictions, particularly in the legal context. But that is exactly where you have the problem from. The nature of a political party, which is a collection of people who share the same political ideas, this collection of people don't come from heaven. They are Ghanaians. And so what really goes on, this malice is just a reflection of the nature of the Ghanaian society. So you, 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 you cannot, if you were to even export Ghanaians into the American political stage and give them the opportunity to form political parties, you are likely to have some of these problems that you're having because they are inherent 
First, it's inherent in our history. If you see the later stage of our nationalist struggle, you would see clearly the nature and type of political party in a plural political system that was being sold, particularly in African countries. Clearly, they were beginning to shape our thought processes along lines that the best way for you to become independent and run a democratic system was to begin to be going along either a Westminster model or any other model of the colonial master. People assumed this thing was done in a vacuum. Yes, the philosophical underpinnings of a political party was offered to us as the best path to follow. But the resources that actually make that philosophical path meaningful was not available. And that is why we are today talking about whether the state should fund political parties or it should not. And I can indicate very clearly that a pool was conducted in this country between 2006 and 2007. And the majority of the population, and for very good reasons, were not in favor of spending public money on political parties. And this is because of the pathology of political parties that we have known since independence of most African countries. And if you were to compare what a political party does in contribution to the wider development of the country, and match that against development gaps in health, education, and other things, which makes even political participation meaningful. One will be asking if we are prioritizing expenditures, whether you'll be putting, giving money to political parties, which can even be embezzled anyway, because resources that go into other public institutions are often embezzled. And why do you think money that goes into a political parties that operate in a particular context will also not be embezzled or not be misused, as it were? Then the second most intriguing aspect of what we should be looking at in relation to the political party philosophical background is also that there is a particular tradition about what a political party does. And that is part of our psyche and our reality. The political party in most African countries doesn't seek to shape the public will as theory and philosophy would tell us. They are election machineries. There are machines that are put in place to actually win elections. And the logic for which they want to win elections are quite clear. It is because, again, you find yourself in the syndrome of the winner takes all. So a political party then becomes a vehicle to actualize some of the negative aspects of what we have in our life. I have always said that nobody should be talking about accountability, probity, and all other issues within a democratic dispensation outside the political party. The political party is really the incubator of political corruption in this country. And it is important that you address the problem from that. Who become the leaders of political parties? How do they become the leaders of political parties? Who has a voice in political parties? I remember some years ago in our own experience, there was a dichotomy that was drawn when the new political parties were being formed. They had distinguished the members of a political party in what you call men of substance and men of straw. And as a result, 
when they win political pa power, what do you have? You have another category of people. The majority of party members become stakeholders. While the tiny minority who are really the brokers and financiers of the political party become what you call the board members or those who actually own the political party. So after elections, when the euphoria is over, the board convenes to make sure that dispensations and what flows from political victory is shared. It is only during electioneering time that the wider stakeholder of the rank and file of a party become relevant. And that for me is very, very significant. So yes, in terms of conception of a political party, we are putting that conception into a social and traditional matrix that is not what the Western notion of a political party is. People never want us to discuss what you call cultural relativity in relation to institutions. But that is very, very important. People have even tried to show how African political traditional structures have mimicked political structures in Western democracies. And I said, no, no matter whatever you do, you can call your party a democratic party or a labor party in Ghana. It will not be the labor party of the United Kingdom because you are dealing with a labor party in Ghana. You can call your party the liberal party of Ghana. It will not be a liberal party as understood in most of the mature Western democracies. So we, we, we have to be sensitive to this relativity in terms of the particular social structure in which we are sometimes forcing to locate an ideal typical institution and you expect it. And we're still, when we now come to evaluate the performance of political parties, we again take it out of the social and cultural context. And we apply lock frames and matrices that we have always used in other countries. And of course, you'll be finding us taking negative and negative, but its foundations is what is at the core of the problems that we have today. I will come back on another aspect of what I call the, the pathology. The political party has become a legal pathology in most emerging democracies. And this is for the simple reason that a constitution is structured in such a way, as uh, I had self indicated, that our regulatory threshold on political financing is not perhaps detailed enough. I did admit that by saying, I think we needed a specific law on campaign financing. But you cannot, a political party structure is a creature of the constitution. And the constitution has to be read in, in the whole. So you will find that this political party becomes like a, a type of right that individual Ghanaians can belong to. So anything carrying too much in detail with the political party will go and offend a constitutional provision. And so you will have to take that. Secondly, you don't look at just the, two, the, the, the political parties act of 200 or 2000 as the basis of the entire regulatory framework. In fact, almost every offense under the special prosecutor's office in Ghana has some relationship with political party financing and corruption. So the few that you have in that act 
of 2000, actually brings in a large body of the entire criminal law jurisprudence of a country. So you okay. could always charge somebody under mm. an appropriate law, regardless of whether the person carries out that corrupt bribery activity within the political parties or not. Okay. And so you don't just duplicate crimes that already mm. exist in your criminal law in a specific, specific context. Otherwise, every social ill that we have would have to be criminalized in a particular law. And so you'll be having over 10,000 codes of criminal law that address specific situations when you could have general laws that will cut across all the different mm -hmm. uh, facets wow. of wow. So, 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 Doc, th thank you. If I get you right, you are basically saying this financing issue is a consequence of a bigger context, social structure, cultural issues, history, constitution. So you are essentially saying it's an effect and not the cause of our problems, if I get you right. Well, partly, uh, I wouldn't put it in black and white in terms of cause and effect, but I'll rather seek to put it within the context that is cyclical, as I'm indicated. At one point, it operates like an effect, but because it's cyclical, in another context, it operates as a cause. Fantastic. And that's why I started talking of the transformation <laughs> of economic power into social power, into political mm. power in that context. So Great. it must depend on the particular context in which you are looking at it, which will tell you whether it's a cause or it's or an effect. effect. Fantastic. I, I appreciate that. Just to remind panelists, uh, not panelists, our participants, that this is not philosophy department. This is faculty of law, <laughs> but I, I'm loving it. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Apia, my yeah. question still stands. I'm asking that, let me reiterate why I ask the question. When you read IEA, um, uh, Professor Jampo, it discusses yeah. political party financing and winner takes all. And this mm. is some 12 years ago. And it's very clear from his writings that he believes it's a causal problem in our winner takes all. So he thinks if you deal with party financing, you deal with winner takes all. If you read CDD, whether it's Jimabwedi 2009, or other researches they've done, they link it directly to corruption. So for them, again, it's a cause. Dr. Takumbo says it's not as simple as cause effect, it's cyclical. Without giving me a lot of philosophy, <laughs> just tell me, are you tending towards more the cause or the effect side? Thank you, Doc. Right, uh, Bernard, uh, Ghana is not the only country practicing a winner-take-all system. I don't like the winner-take-all system anyway. But I, I don't think that uh, the problems and then challenges that we have with campaign financing, and here I want to focus more on political party financing, because since it, under the Fourth Republic, uh, I don't have, we've not had any independent candidates ever winning, and I don't foresee that happening <laughs> in the next 10 years or so. You know, uh, the, the problem about campaign financing uh, that I stated earlier, and which uh, uh, Dr. Kumbo also uh, emphasized, is a problem of enforcement of the rules. And, and let me state a portion of the Political Parties Act, okay, to put it into context. If you look at Section 21 of the Political Parties Act, it says, a political party shall, within six months from 31st December of each year, 
file with the electoral commission a return in the form specified by the commission, indicating one, the state of its accounts, two, the sources of its funds, three, membership dues paid, four, contributions or donations in cash or kind, five, the properties of the party and time of acquisition, six, such other particulars as the commission may reasonably require and audited accounts of party for the year. And then since the 1992 constitution came into force and this particular act came into force, you don't find a single political party that has fulfilled this requirement of the law. Every year, the EC, at least from last year, 2018, 2015, 2017, the EC kept reminding parties to fulfill it. When I say you don't find a, a single political party, what I mean is that since 1993 to 2020, not a single party has filed its returns every year, okay? Over the years, you find many political parties flouting the rule. And you ask yourself, what has the Electoral Commission done? And the rule mandates the Electoral Commission to specify the form that the parties are to submit their account. And they have not done that. The rule also, uh, the laws empower the Electoral Commission even to revoke uh, the registration of a political party or uh, a party that consistently fails to uh, abide by the rules, the EC has got the power you know, to, 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 to take away the registration license from that political party. You know? But from the beginning, uh, uh, from 1993, you find Dr. Farajan making the arguments that our democracy is young. And so if you, if you crack the whip too hard, you are going to kill uh, the democratic system. So we should nurture it gradually. And then now having practiced this system for uh, at least since 1992, I think that it is time that we begin to Hello, Dr. Apia, we are having a challenge. Doc, we are having a challenge with your connection. I, 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 I believe there are data issues actually involved. So. the rules and demand from the power actually says, if you go to maybe... Uh... Doc, we, we are having difficulty with your connection. So Hello, you, I can you I hear you to, me? It's not very clear. I want you to pause. I want you to pause and okay. bring in Dr. Carol. And then if you can work on your connection because it's, it's dragging, so therefore it's difficult to hear you. So we apologize for that. Uh, doc, Dr. Carol, you, you have a very fresh experience and I recall your Tafo Pankrono experience. Um, are you, can you use that to, to sort of enter the conversation about cause or effect? Because here you are in a so-called so stronghold of a party and you have challenges in the media already and then in terms of raising funds as well. Talk to me about what happened and how that links to the problem of whether this party financing is at the root of the problem or whether there are deeper issues of which the party financing is just a, a, a symptom. Um, okay, Bennett. So, um, I mean, I'm not quite sure about the chicken and egg situation. <laughs> 
you know, but I think that I would like to agree with Dr. Pierre that the issue, you know, has to do much more with, you know, the lack of enforcement and, you know, in addition, the institutional capacity of the Electoral Commission. I mean, the Electoral Commission, which is supposed to be the, the, the institution to, you know, provide sanctions and affect them and all of that. I mean, wh why are we where we are today, where what happens in the, in the political system is about raising money from a few people, so large monies from a few people, instead of being creative about, you know, propelling the grassroots to contribute more to membership dues, or even having to raise little sums of money from a large number uh, or broad-based, you know, um, number of people. I think when you check the U.S., for instance, I was just reading around it, and I, 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 I noticed that, you know, if you take Bernie Sanders, for instance, of course, we all know about Obama. These are people who were able to raise a larger chunk of their money. I think Bernie Sanders, for instance, raised almost about 60 or 70 percent of his campaign money, you know, through ordinary Americans people who are just donating $20, you know, nothing beyond 200 or $250. And they were able to raise, you know, 45 million US dollars through all these small, small, you know, contributions. So for me, I think that if we are asking the question, why are we where we are today? Where, you know, there is a lot of corruption when it comes to, you know, financing why there is, you know, because of corruption and because we having to raise money from a few people, there is social exclusion because you don't find minorities or let's say women and other social groups um, able to raise the needed money to be able to make the cuts because there is over money, you know, there is monetization of, 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 of the process. I mean, I think it's because, you know, as Dr. Pierre said, it's because of the lack of enforcement and the institutional capacity of the electoral commission. Because we need to be able to ask ourselves, you know, is the electoral commission with the investigative mandate to be able to say that, you know, okay, candidates or, of course, the framework doesn't even allow for candidates to file, you know, their campaign expenditure, who donated, how much did that person donate, and what use have you put the campaign finance to? Of course, it allows for political parties to do some form of it. But are they able to be able to, you know, implement that? Are they able to go after political parties, you know, for them to even enforce just the limited laws that we have? They are not able to do that. So I think that we need to be start thinking around, you know, whether we have the right model of the institutional uh, framework that we need to be able to check the corruption in the system, to be able to you know, bring party financing or the, the, the implementation or the operation around it to what we, you know, we want it to be. And I think that, you know, we, we need the EC or whichever framework that we want it to work. Uh, we need it equipped with the qualified, you know, personnels to be able to deliver on that. They need the material resources to be able to deliver on that. And they need dedicated staff to be able to also, you know, do that. And I think that HKP, uh, Professor HKP and then Professor Kukwasari do argue, I think in one of the things that they wrote that 
we could also be looking at a multi-institutional you know, approach to law enforcement when it comes to campaign financing. So then if the political parties or candidates file their statements with the Electoral Commission, uh, the Electoral Commission can then take it to the audit service for it to be audited. And once they have the investigative you know, uh, mandate or they have the, the power to sanction, whatever um, I think is a result or you know, violations which are found out, you know, they can also, you know, crack the whip when it comes Dr. to- Dr. Carroll, yeah. I, I noticed um, you and some of the other panelists are going into the solutions, which I'm very happy oh. for. But I, I, I actually mm -hmm. still want to press you a bit because mm -hmm. um, we are told that most of the political participants in terms of MP aspirants <laughs> depend mm -hmm. on their personal resources for campaign. Mm -hmm. Some say they use dividend from micro-businesses to fund their constituency campaign. A few um, said they went to banks, only 10%. I'm quoting the Westminster Foundation for, for Democracy Study. So a, a lot of them use their personal monies. Some use proceeds mm -hmm. from their personal businesses. Some borrowed from maybe credit unions and a smaller group borrowed from financial institutions. Mm -hmm. I mean, we also told that Incumbents found it easier to attract money than challengers. In your mm. case, you were a challenger. And no, what it was the fun? It. Yeah, it was all of you were challengers because all of you were new in terms of there was a no incumbent. Just, are you willing to share with us? Did you try any, for example, a fundraising campaign with mobile phone numbers, contributions, any mass uh, grassroots mobilization of 10 Ghana cities, 5 Ghana cities each? What can you share about your experience? <laughs> but that if fun? you do that, you know, people are not even going to vote for you because <laughs> it means you don't have money. And the system that we operate, you know, um, you have grassroots members, or let me just say that in the developing world, you have, if, if you have to, if you are part of the political system and you are contesting for elections, the people are expecting you to rather oil the vehicle at the grassroots, not for you to take from them. Wow. So if you come, you know, if somebody, a friend of mine tried to even do a GoFundMe campaign. By the way, um, I think that somewhere in 2016, there were two, you know, Facebook friends who did this amazing work of raising funds, you know, from, you know, ordinary Ghanaians and all that, and they were able to raise some money. But in our case, and I think in the, in, in the case for majority of people, if you started doing that, it's like, for elections. <laughs> you don't have the money and you want to now come, instead of coming to put oil, you know, into the vehicle at the grassroots, you now want to take from the people. But that's also because, you know, of the socioeconomic status of majority of the people. Are they able to be able to fund, you know, their campaigns? Are they even able to pay regular uh, membership dues and all of that? That is not, you know, existent because there is difficulties. People don't have enough money to spare, you know, for, mm. for, 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 for us to also get some to go and- So, sorry, doc, you seem to be agreeing with Dr. Kumbo then when he says, it, it looks like it's really the way that people see politics, the way they conceptualize things. So don't just take a Western model and say, oh, mm -hmm. funding of political parties, Ghanaians are doing this. You are just telling me that if you did a GoFundMe campaign or fundraising, which a lot of middle-class people will see as noble, your constituents mm -hmm. will say, ah, now this lady, fine, she's serious. Instead of coming to receive <laughs> delegates' money, she's now coming to beg. So they, you are undermining 
your own chances by trying to do something which is more noble. Is that's essentially what you are saying? Yeah, which is noble, which is creative, which vests power also in the people. Because if you have to depend, you know, depend on a few people to give you all the, you know, large sums of money that you need, then you know you lose some form of independence to them. Yeah. And we're always talking about. The political system not being hijacked by, you know, a few elites who are able to, you know, donate money to the system. So I think that our own socioeconomic status when it comes to the grassroots level uh, doesn't facilitate such creativity in opening up or making way for a broad-based mobilization okay. of funds. Great. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Pia, please put up your that mic. That because... oh, takes all. All right. Yeah, put up your I mic. hope I you can hear me. Yes, but oh. I'll come to you later. I want you to put up your mic because I could hear you when Carol was talking. Great. So, Carol, can you wrap up your point? Yeah, so let me just wrap up with, I mean, so we also have the perception that, or the, you know, the impression that you are the one who wants the power and you are the one who is going to better yourself by getting that power. Why should we invest in it, right? So that also is a challenge to when you have to, you know, raise money from, you know, a broad-based um, you know, from, from the grassroots people. So, okay. I mean, I think that, as I said, there should definitely be, you know, enforcement. We should um, open the framework to cover, you know, a lot of the things that the laws are silent on. And I think that mm. if we are able yeah. to do that, you know, yeah. we should be able yeah. to curtail I'll, the I'll, corruption I'll, in, mm -hmm. the, in the in political party financing or political financing. Thank you, Dr. Louis Caradonko. I'll come back to the proposals. But, but Seb, I don't want you to generalize, but what Dr. Carroll says about her experience in primaries, as in if she tried to do a GoFundMe or a grassroots financing, she will get pushed back. Bernard, please, can you generalize it? So not no, me, no, I, I, I'm no, just no, saying no, candidates. Just, <laughs> no, just, no, no don't, don't worry. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm trying to use this to enrich the conversation. I'm not going to quote you on air. Just relax. <laughs> so Seb, my question is, how typical is what she's saying to the mindset in Africa? I know you don't like to just generalize Africa, Africa, but could it be that the way we see our leaders and attempt to raise funds from them could generate such pushback and therefore trying to even deal with campaign financing, we have to ask ourselves, how do people see their elected representatives as their parents who supplies them with money and gives them resources or as somebody they all invest into to bring development. Is that an important conversation? And how does Ghana compare in that frame with other African countries, for example, Seth? Um, so, I mean, I would say that I agree with a lot of what Dr. Carroll and Dr. Kumbo said in the sense that, you know, these things don't happen in a vacuum and context matters. So you do see in um, poorer um, African countries, um, poorer countries and other parts of the world where democracy is newer and where there is a long history of significant patronage or clientelism, that um, the way a politician establishes credibility is by showing what they can provide as part of their campaign. Um, and that can include, you know, providing certain um, private benefits, you know, whether it's bags of rice, cooking oil, or, you know, um, whatever. So I think that I would agree with Dr. Carol and um, Dr. Kumbo that it's, it's a cause and effect 
um, situation. Um, it's, it's gray rather than black and white. But I would also say that this is, um, this ties back to the point I tried to make earlier, that political financing is kind of, it's, 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 a, it's a slice of a much bigger conversation that we need to be having about what type of political system do we want and how do we get there from where we are. Legislation can be a part of it. And again, I agree with Dr. Kumbo that, you know, it doesn't make sense to be passing laws just to you know, have more laws on the books, particularly if those issues are addressed in other um, aspects of the legal framework. Secondly, you know, I mean, I have a lot of questions about whether it makes sense to pass laws that we don't have the capacity to enforce for whatever reason. But I would also say thirdly that we can't rely solely on legislation to solve all of these problems for us. We have to think about the work that we have to do in terms of civic education, in terms of um, monitoring by um, civil society, by the media, um, and, and, and so forth. So to summarize, no, these issues aren't exclusive to Ghana. You know, you have issues with politicians in um, a lot of other African countries spending money as part of a way to establish their credibility because people are electing people whom they feel can provide for them, right? There are voters who vote based, based on that. And so that is part of that is part of the calculation. And that is part of this broader system that you know, we should be talking about and you know, discussing, okay, is this the system we want? If it's not, what kind of system do we want and how do we, how do we get there? Great stuff. We've done an hour exactly. And thank you, panelists. Um, I have 20 more minutes to go around, but because I see a lot of hands, I'm gonna just use 10 of those minutes for recommendations then I would expand the question and answer period and then take final comments. Now, on the basis of what all four of you have said, I want to rephrase my final question because now I don't want to ask the question about just financing. So I think the question then becomes, how do we get our political party system that we are running now to deliver better governance and developmental outcomes, right? How do we get the arrangements we have which includes the finance and everything else, to deliver better democratic and development outcomes. I, I'm trying to sort of make it broad. And I'll start with Dr. Apia there because clearly right. this is not just a financing issue. So how do right. we, and I want your top three recommendations. Right. And I'm giving you three minutes. Top three okay. recommendations, three minutes. Right. Uh, uh, sorry to participate that my, my network has been unstable. I have many different networks, but none of them seems to be. <laughs> right. Uh, so, uh, Bernard, I will link this to the point, uh, the earlier point. The, the first one is that if you look at the system of governance uh, in Ghana, uh, our winner-take-all system of governance, and then the fact that we have issues concerning the enforcement of laws, you know, if you compare that to other African countries that have been able to create more effective institutions, what you see is that they, those that have been able to create more effective institutions don't practice the winner-take-all system that Ghana practices. I'll mention, for instance, South Africa, Namibia, or Cape Verde. If you across the African terrain, Cape Verde has uh, the best form of democracy. Uh, if you look at international scores, they score 10 over 10. 
okay? But these countries that have created more effective institutions, they have a different form of democracy called proportional representative democracy. And the majority of countries across the globe, they practice proportional representative democracy. So it is time that we revisit the issue about what type of democracy do we really need that will really facilitate our development. You know, what type of democracy do we think will be able to bring on board the best ideas, the best brains? You know, so the first is for us to revisit the type of democracy. And I think that it is time that we do away with the winner-take-all system uh, of democracy and then adopt a proportional representative democracy that has been adopted by the countries that are make, making better progress. The second recommendation is that we need to review and reform you know, the Political Parties Act. Now we need a campaign financing act, not just a political parties act. And the issue of campaigning, we have to go beyond campaigning for election as a member of parliament, campaigning for election to be president, to look at the issue of even campaigning uh, to win a position within the party itself. Because what happens is that those who want to be members of parliament today, they finance Right. Those who want to be members of parliament today, they finance the election of other uh, party officials by paying their dues for them. You know, so when it is time for voting for who becomes a member of parliament, it is members who are in good standing financially, have contributed, they have paid their dues and then all that. So we should extend the law to say that before you stand for election, Within the party, you should also submit your sources of revenue statement of accounts, your assets. So we should have mm. an asset declaration regime for those who want to contest for elections. Right. With is, is this part of your second point on the reform of laws, or this is this a separate point? It's a separate point from the broader issue of the political system that uh, I think we have to take a look at. We have to move so, away from So let me just get you straight. Proportional representation, exactly. and reform of political parties law, we need exactly. a campaign financing and an asset declaration. Yeah. Yes, and these are the two major things that I think that we should uh, do. The third Fantastic. thing uh, is that I think that now going forward, the law says that if 21 days to an election, a party should submit its account to the EC. Now, parties that are not able to do that, we should be able to take them to court and take them out of the race. The, the EC should be able to enforce that. Okay, so the issue must enforce its own laws. Thank you. Doc, Dr. Kumbo, yeah. I, I, I know you have a lot of points to make, but for the sake of time, give me some thoughts on how do we get our current system to deliver better development and democratic outcomes? Yes, uh, just the three quick ones. The first is that we have to unlearn the concept of a political party in our context, and perhaps relearn the type of institutional structure that we want to actually become the vehicle to practice our political activity. Secondly, we need a level of conscientization of the electorate. Right now, if we do not conscientize people to resist corruption generally, not to celebrate the corrupt person, not to denigrate the one who doesn't become corrupt 
in public life, then we will be making a way forward. And thirdly, we have to make political party grafts very, very unattractive. We should put in structures that shows that if you want to become a rich man and you don't want to work for it, you should start taking lotto. Perhaps lack my smile on you. But as long as we continue to celebrate the people who get involved in illicit and dodgy activities, we even give them all sorts of names. And sometimes I, I get worried when I hear, you see, the, the Ghanaian cycle is fine. Let your son become president today. They start calling him the old man. No matter how young he is. And you don't understand this concept of the old man. The concept of the old man is the old father who provides the goodies. I remember when I was a minister of defense, somebody came to look for me in the house and asked my daughter that was then eight years old. That is the old man around. My daughter said, no, we don't have an old man in this house. He says, oh, I mean your daddy. He says, but you're older than my daddy. How can my daddy be an old man? For me, this is the way we should be looking at it. We have got a lot of appellations and adjectives. And all these things are done not in a vacuum, but to create a planned political system from which graft can really take place. And if you see the context of Ghana, we set them up. I used to tell a number of my electorate that you are complaining that your child is not well fed in the secondary school. And you expect the headmaster of the school and the bezer to come and donate a thousand CDs at a funeral or at a wedding. Where do you think that money is coming from? If you expect that a hundred CDs that is honest and sincere donation of a member of parliament is too small and that MP or politician is prepared as they normally would say, how do you expect that your health delivery facility will not suffer? And so people, you must connect the wider corruption syndrome in our society and link it to the vehicle of political parties. And the reason is because this fulcrum of a political party, as I keep saying, in the so-called democratic dispensation that we are practicing, is capable of facilitating a number of things, particularly where by mistake it gets political power. And to be honest with you, if you were to ask me, if, uh, if I were to answer you very sincerely, that's as a critical thinker and not necessarily a politician, I'll be telling you that I do not see any ideological difference between any political party in Africa. I've had the opportunity of studying the political party manifestos. And there is something in the manifesto you have to look at and link up to this particular issue. If you look at the political party manifestos, not only of Ghana, but other African countries have had the opportunity, you will see that that is a hidden transcript of a shopping list in anticipation of election victory. And they say that who is going to give you money for campaign if they do not see what is in your manifesto for them? So your infrastructure is lined up in your manifesto. And perhaps people are saying, hey, 350 hospitals. Perhaps I can get one as a contract. Let me begin now. 
tarring this amount of kilometers of road, then they say, ah, there is something there for me. So the, the, the structure of even our manifesto becomes a marketing list. And those who genuinely subscribe to the manifesto okay. are not looking at ideology. Fantastic. And that's why I'm saying that the value is the same, regardless of whether they say they are center-left, they are center, okay. they are left. That is the problem we have because of our peculiar historical and social right. context. So you've given me the learning and unlearning, political party, what it means, and then conscientizing people to see the link between society's own concept of corruption and then the political party arrangement. With some very strong examples. Thank you. Right. Uh, Dr. Lewis Carroll Donko, what will be your, your top three recommendations? Please unmute your mic. Please unmute your mic. Okay. Yeah, so uh, Dr. Kumbo, Sefako, and um, uh, Dr. Pia, you know, they, they've said a lot. And I'm just going to pick pieces of, you know, what they've said in the past and what the two also shared um, apparently to make my point. So I will agree with Dr. Pia that we need to visit our democracy. You know, what kind of democracy do we want? Is it the one that the best of ideas takes center stage or the one that, you know, uh, if you have enough money, the louder you are, uh, the more marketing or communications you are able to do, you know, uh, you, 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 you take, you know, the crown at the end of the day. I mean, I think that our democracy is so we can borrow from the best of ideas for development, for good governance. And so if we understand it in that context, um, I mean, I think that a lot of how we raise money and a lot of, you know, how the monies are even put to use would change. So revisiting our democracy is one. I also think that uh, we should get a new political financing law, just as Dr. Pierce said because there are so many gaps, you know, that has to be filled, the issues around, you know, who gets to donate, how much they can donate, you know, um, expenditure limits, how much you raise, of what use you can put that money to, and, you know, all that limitation contribution bans and, you know, expenditure limits. There are, you know, gray areas there, there are gaps there that we need to fill, you know, as well. I mean, for that, I'll leave it to, you know, the rest of the panelists, they are more versed, you know, when it comes to that. Um, but I think my, you know, what I actually would want to see is how we use public funding or financing of political parties or political activities. And as, you know, as Farko said earlier, to push for, you know, more creativity in, in, in the policies that we want. And so, for instance, I know that, you know, when you take Kibbed, Mali, um, you know, Niger, Burkina Faso, Niger and Burkina Faso, uh, their public funding structure is such that, you know, you need to have some, um, you know, amount or number of elected women officials, you know, in parliament or in your national executive system or that you are actively supporting women or other social groups to be able to enjoy, you know, the, the, the public funding that, you know, you can get from the state. So for okay. me, if we, are, if we are doing a new, if we are overhauling 
you know, our political finance laws as we have them now, the bit that comes under part, uh, public funding, because of course there is the private funding, but the bit that comes, you know, under public funding, I want us to, you know, carefully and intentionally use it to promote the ideals of the democracy that we want to mm -hmm. have, which is to get the best of ideas, which is to promote social inclusion, you know, of mm. minorities, the disabled, you know, women and, you know, mm. youth in our part of okay. politics. Okay. And, you know, of course, we shouldn't forget, you know, um, thinking around whether the EC actually is the best institution to, okay. to enforce, you know, the regulations. Yeah, that the regulations. Okay. Doc, thank you. I need to make point out that the EC was invited to this interaction, but they did not respond because there are quite a lot of issues hovering around the EC. But Dr. Lewis, thank you for your contributions. Mm -hmm. Let me take the final contribution from Seth, and then we will open the floor. Seth, you have the table. Uh, thank you. So um, just quickly, because I know we want to go uh, to Q&A. Um, so completely agree with um, Dr. Kumbo, Dr. Louise Carroll, Donko, and others that, you know, it's at the end of the day, it's about us as citizens. So citizens have to um, engage, and that includes unlearning old behaviors and learning new ones, as Dr. Kumbo said. I think, secondly, as we review the legislative uh, framework around political parties and, and political financing, and just to build on some of the points that uh, Dr. Dr. Donko made, I think that there are some interesting examples out there. She mentioned the example of Mali, where political parties who not only failed a certain number of women candidates, but um, field winning women candidates get more public um, financing. Um, in Kenya, there is a, a particular portion of the public funding that political parties get that is supposed to be used to strengthen and advance the uh, political participation of uh, women and young people. Ireland has a different approach where if you don't field a certain portion of women candidates, you lose as much as 50% of the public funding that you get um, from, from, from the state. So I think there are some interesting examples out there. I think my plea would be as um, legal frameworks are being um, reviewed, um, I would encourage people to think about not just controlling or restricting bad things, but promoting good things. Um, and I think tying back to the point that Dr. Kumbo, I think, made earlier, there is such a thing as too much regulation of uh, political parties. We didn't get um, a chance to discuss this, but um, I think we, we mustn't forget that political parties at the end of the day are tied to fundamental rights in terms of freedoms of association and, and expression. And then I think whatever the framework is, we, we, we have to think seriously about, about enforcement. Mm -hmm. And I think we've already said enough on that point. So I, I, I won't say anything, anything more on that. I look forward to the rest of the discussion. Thank you so much. Wow, great submissions from our panelists. If this was an audience in the hall, I would have asked for a round of applause. But thank you guys, that was awesome. Now, I want to read a couple of comments that have come in on the chat. And then I have some very interesting people I've seen. I've seen Dr. H. Chrissy Prempe. I've seen Professor Fia Joe. Uh, so please get ready, I will call you for comments. But let me just read a few uh, questions that have come up on the platform just for those who are not seeing this. Um, somebody called Fidel Abowe. Fidel is asking, to what extent 
does citizen financial contribution to political parties and campaigns or the lack thereof alter the dynamic of citizen expectation or political accountability in Ghanaian politics? So to what extent does financial contributions of individuals affect the way they see accountability? Katie from Haiti is also asking about regulations, about source of financing of political parties, regulations about source of financing. So if any member of the panel has answers, you can take notes and answer those questions later. There's a, a, another contribution from um, Daniel Akatapori, and he's asking, or is a statement he's making, all emoluments due MPs should be deposited with the constituency development board, which should then determine how much the MP takes as salary, etc. The fund should also receive all other funds which the MPs currently receive. Wow, talking of radical uh, ideas, Daniel Akatapori, maybe it's because of the name. <laughs> You are saying we should take all the money, put it in a constituency development board, and they will determine how much the MP gets. The fund also receives all other funds which the MPs currently receive. That's an interesting suggestion. Let me ask for comments. Dr. Kwesi Prempe, I, I know you are, you, you are there. What are your thoughts? Any quick comments or questions for, for the panel? Please turn on your mic. Hi, Bernard. Um, good, good afternoon. I'm coming to this late, so I am not sure uh, what territory you have traveled. Um, I, I, would, I think one of the things I, I would like the panel to address is how we get back to a system where parties are financed first and foremost by their membership. Right. Um, that I think should be the, the bedrock principle that basically parties being membership based organizations, uh, even though they seek a larger voter population out there, uh, the support of a larger voter population, they start from a base. And I, I think what we, we've got into uh, is a situation where our parties uh, more and more are moving away from being membership driven. <laughs> Uh, as they seek more and more voters, they are moving more and more away to being membership driven and have become essentially beholden to a small oligarchy uh, within each party. They appear less interested in members than in votes. Uh, in fact, in, in some cases, it's probably very difficult to get a membership card of a political party. Right? So the parties are becoming more and more controlled by a small oligarchy in the party. Um, so they don't even raise very much in the way of uh, funds or, or subscription or dues from their membership. Uh, I think that thinking about political party and campaign financing, we need to return to this issue of parties as first and foremost membership-based organizations. And therefore, that we must require or expect them at the very minimum, to show a certain commitment to raising funding from their own membership first. I, my own view on, on um, public financing of parties has actually shift, shifted over time from being one who was uh, strongly opposed to it uh, to someone who is willing to, to actually uh, think about it to the, in, insofar as we can use that as a hook, I think I like the point that 
Dr. Lewis Carroll made about using political party funding, if we have to go in that direction, as a hook to get parties to commit to a certain number of reforms within the organization. And I think one of the things that we should get parties to do uh, is to show that they have actually raised a substantial amount of money from within their membership, not just a few oligarchs in the party, but uh, membership broadly. How can we do that? We have been uh, moving towards digitalization. Uh, now we all have multiple biometric uh, cards, voter ID cards, uh, voter uh, biometric passport, biometric Ghana card. I think one of the things we need to do is for parties to actually document who they raise money from and take their information. For example, if you donate to a party, you must, you must, they must record your Ghana card or your voter card, and these disclosures must be made public because the law requires, for example, that parties cannot raise money from non-citizens. Now, if we do not have a way of documenting the nationality of those who donate money to the parties, how are we going to enforce, for example, the constitutional injunction against raising money from non-citizens? So we must get the parties to begin, one, to raise money from their membership, and in doing so, to document who it is that is giving money to them, how much of it, and, and that kind of stuff. We, we, have, we now have a basis, uh, at least a technology that we can begin to get the parties to begin to roll out and begin to document these things. So that's, for me, the angle that I, I would like to come from at this, at this stage. Uh, there's a lot of of issues that are touched by party financing. It's not just corruption. And I'm sure that you've covered a lot of that ground already. I mean, we tend to think of it immediately as just something about corruption. It's much, much bigger than corruption. It's actually a, a more pernicious form of corruption would be state capture, you know, where your policies and programs and laws are made for the benefit of persons who have interest inimical to the state, but who have funded you substantially. Right? But that is not just simple corruption. That is actually state capture. And that kind of stuff, uh, when we don't do something about the unregulated, um, undisclosed, unknowable amounts of money in our politics, we open ourselves to that kind of danger as well. All right. Thank you very much. Um, we have uh, Lolan Segomosis. If you're there, can we have your question? Lolan, are, are you there? Okay, if, if you are not ready, let me ask whether Professor Fiaggio wants to make a, an inter intervention. Professor Fiaggio. Yes. Yes. Um, so I'll, I'll ask a question which may be a bit direct to Dr. Dr. Kubo and Dr. Carroll. How did mm -hmm. you finance your campaigns? Um, and if there was any element of financing, um, non-personal financing, so financing by um, family and friends or other contributors, especially for Dr. Kumbo, what effect did those individuals or entities have on your parliamentary program? And the second question would be to Dr. Kumbo. Um, you argued that we don't need 
additional laws. But if you look at the Political Parties Act, both the Political Parties Act and Article 55 of the Constitution, they uh, mandate that political parties must declare the sources of their funds. But we as um, Citizen Ghana Movement, so I'm a member of Citizen Ghana Movement, we sued for copies of these accounts, of annual accounts of political parties. And if you look at what political parties declare as the sources of funds um, closely, they are really just descriptions of the sources of funds, not the actual sources of funds. So for example, in its 2005 um, accounts, the MPP declared that a party member loaned the party 288 million cities to fund the company's fundraising raffle. So that's, I think, 288 old Ghana cities. Um, but they said a party member loaned the party that amount. We don't know who that party member is. And if we don't know who the party member is, who the individual, specific individual or entity is, how can we then track the problem that um, Professor Prempe alluded to, state capture? How can we tell whether particular individuals or entities are influencing national level policy or are being awarded contracts um, or are receiving other benefits because of their contributions? So those are my two questions. Thank you, sir. We appreciate it. Uh, is there any other question that we can take before I read others? Okay, so let me allocate the questions. Um, HKP's question is generally for all. He wants to know how we can get parties to go back to a subscription or member-based payment. And that's a very interesting question he asked. And if there are any comments. But there are two direct questions to Dr. Lewis Carroll and Dr. Kumbo, and also a question about the issue of the way parties report. So Dr. Lewis, I think Lolan has come back to the question I tried to get you to answer, which you, you didn't really want to answer. So please put on your mic and let's see if you yeah. give us. <laughs> so I think another gentleman, uh, Adri, asked the same question and I responded. I typed the, the, the response to it. Um, so, I mean, I don't know if Lolan and the, the other gentleman followed my campaign, but it was very issue-based. And whoever I got money from, you know, I had to convince people to get the monies that, you know, I got. And the people who donated to me were all people who believed in my ability and my vision to, you know, uh, transform my constituency. And they believed in the ideas that, you know, I went about, you know, talking. I grew up in the constituency I knew the problems, you know, and I had solutions to them. And so I had to really work hard, work very hard, you know, to get money. And, you know, it's always from a limited, you know, number of people. And if you need that huge sums of money and you, you can only source it, you know, from a few people, I think you really have to work very hard and you have to be convincing and persuasive and they have to believe that, you know, you can make a difference in politics. And for me, I think that's what did it for me. People who donated believed, as you know, Dolan, that I can make a difference in politics. Dr. Kumbo, what would be your response to the direct question to you? Well, very interesting question, but we should be looking at the time frame that we are discussing. I, if you take 2000 elections that I contested first, 
I had just come down as a hot-headed radical postgraduate from Warwick University, where we learned almost all the ideas about African corruption, and with the agenda that I wanted to make a difference. It didn't look different. Whether I succeeded or not, I'm not too sure. But so that phase of political funding, I was very clear in my mind that there was no way I was going to get anybody to bankroll me for the campaign and I was going to present myself. So I sold an old car I left before I went to graduate school, got a bit of money. At that time, I must be honest to say, the financial demands were not very high. The other significant strategy was that I insisted that I was not going to allow the local party bureaucracy to force me to make commitments I could not fulfill. And I made that very, very clear from the onset. Thirdly, I suffered from a particular psychology of someone who has just come from abroad. There was always the anticipation that this man would have brought some pounds telling, and let's, let's work for him, it will come. Of course, it was after the elections and the victory when they didn't see the anticipated pounds telling, which I never which I never represented to them that I had any such money anyway. I kept telling them I'd just come from school. But all these things worked. But a large number of the people who also came to support me did not come just because they, were, uh, they, they thought that I would have some money to give to them. For the first time, I had the elite of my constituency who works in banks, who work in institutions, some were lecturers in the university, some work with civil society, they agreed to come and be polling agents. And most of them agreed at least to be able to convince their villages to vote for me. So the important thing was to build a critical mass outside a monetized system. And that worked for me in the first round. In the second subsequent elections that I conducted, the monetization of elections and campaigns was beginning to heighten. The luck I had at that time was that I had already received an ex-gracia after my first four years in parliament. And I knew that the expectations were going to grow high. I had always believed in doing a scientific analysis of my political activity. So I did my projections and said, if I could invest this percentage of the ex-gracia, in the next four years, I should be able to run a modest campaign. And that worked for me. The third round of elections, that was in 2012, it became clear to me from my second elections that I would just have to give up this type of politics for the simple reason that it was affecting my health, it was affecting my belief, and it was affecting my ideology. And I could only see a projection of more monetization as many years come by. Mm. Then I discovered a particularly critical situation, which is a cat and mouse game between the electorate and the politician. The electorate or the voter believes the politician is a thief. You can't run away from it. And so if we make unreasonable demands, stealing from the thief is not a crime. So that is how this situation is created. And so when you get to that point, I won't say that was the only reason, but it was one of the reasons that I decided that this type of politics, I was over 
But, but, but was, it, was it affecting your pocket too? Is it affecting your health and your ideas? What about your pocket? Substantially. <laughs> I, I could tell you that when I was practicing as a lawyer before I went to the UK, my mother made this statement, may she rest in peace. That why don't I go back to do my work as a lawyer? Because at least I used to buy her two pieces of new cloth every Christmas when I was practicing as a lawyer. But since I became a politician, it's all headache. Crowds in the morning. Sometimes I even forget that I have responsibility towards my siblings and my parents. Oh. And I thought that was quite telling. And it reached a particular point that you, you, I used to say I admire the Ghanaian and African politician who is successful. Because I believe I wasn't successful. I admire the way they're able to manufacture and wriggle their way around to meet the financial demands and be held in public. I, I, I admire them. That's why I keep saying that I'm particularly not a very good African politician. That I always concede. But I prefer to be a bad African politician than to be a good one. Because my experiences as I write my memoirs, particularly on financing political activity and monetization of politics, is disturbing, particularly when I go back to some notes I made in my diaries over the years. And mm. I feel very passionate about this issue. That's why I joined this discussion. Fantastic. I'm looking forward to your memoirs. If you do a chapter on working with Rollins, I'll promote it for you for free. <laughs> <laughs> Let me come to. <laughs> I will resist this temptation. <laughs> Let me get Dr. Pia's reaction. HKP has some interesting comments about yeah. membership drive leading mm -hmm. to oligarchs being dependent on. What are your thoughts on that and some of the other questions I read earlier? Right. Uh, Bernard, I think the first thing is that uh, we should have a amount that individuals can contribute. We should have a new law that places a limit on it. Okay, because if you, for instance, uh, Dr. Pia, you have to uh, change your internet because we are still having challenges with your, your, your connection. So I, I really apologize for this, but we, we have to um, move to Seth. And if we get you back, we'll, we'll bring you on. Um, Seth, if you can comment on HKP and some of the earlier questions, and we'll get Dr. Apia back. Sure. So I guess just very quickly on um, HKP. I mean, I guess, you know, we had, we had started discussing some of these issues um, earlier, and I just want to reiterate that, you know, at the end of the day, um, for, you know, citizens have to engage. And I think... Um, going back to the point that Dr. Kumbo made on unlearning old behaviors and learning um, new ones. And I think um, programs like the work that CDD Ghana has been doing in terms of the Manifesto Development Project are part of, you know, kind of socializing people and getting them involved in shaping the kinds of political parties they, 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 they want. Um, on, a similar, on a similar note, um, some years ago in Uganda, um, NDI worked with um, a group in Uganda called ACFIM to um, test an approach where basically we were, um, ACFIM was working with voters to explain to them or to discuss with them the potential risks and challenges of accepting, let's just call them goodies, 
from political parties and moving away from that and mo moving rather towards identifying particular needs that the community had as a whole, whether it was um, a new clinic or better medical um, supplies. So I think those are all an important part of the equation. From the legal framework perspective, I mean, I think, and the, the, the comment or question about going back to a member-based uh, political party system, I, I mean, I, I have questions about what is realistic, um, and I think um, what political parties will look like in the future. Because even in, in many of the established democracies, um, they are moving away from member-based um, political parties, and political parties seem to be taking on kind of a new shape or form. So I think that we have to we have to think about not only what our current context is. Um, we can talk about the past, but we also have to think about you know where we go from here. And it may be that we can't go fully back to where we were. I think in, the, in terms of small donations, um, public funding here in the United States doesn't work particularly well. But in places where um, it does exist, um, in different states where it does exist, um, it is sometimes tied to um, donations that you are able to mobilize as a, as a, as a candidate. And it's, you know, it's, it's sort of a, a matching system where if you can show that you've raised a certain amount, the state um, will, 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 will match you. Um, and then um, I think um, in terms of limits on contributions to um, political parties, I think the one thing I will say is that um, those such limits have to be approached carefully. They can't be too low or so high that it's really completely meaningless. Um, also wanted to reinforce, reinforce HKP's point about the risks of um, um, state capture, because then you're getting into a situation where people aren't not only concerned about their own personal benefit, but capturing the entire state um, in order to um, pursue activities that are on the level of um, significant drug trafficking or capture of you know, oil and mineral um, proceeds and, and those kinds of things. Thank you, Seth. Dr. Apia, I'm coming back to you. Right. Uh, Hopefully I, your internet is better this now. time. Yes, go ahead. Uh, Doc, are, are you there? Wow. <laughs> Today your internet is really determined to, 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 to cause confusion. All right, let me see if I have any hands up. If there's any question, I'm happy to take them before I read some of the conversations that are coming on YouTube. Doc, you are back, but can I propose that you put off your video so that we can optimize your bandwidth? So if you can stop your video so we can just get your sound, it will give us less problems. So, so Dr. Um, Apia, just turn off your video and, and speak into the, the mic. Yes, so now turn on your mic. Let's hear you. Okay, all right. So uh, I was saying that uh, in order to also encourage ordinary members to contribute or the parties themselves to also mobilize uh, a lot from ordinary members, there's a need for uh, a new law that uh, specifies the limits. And already, as I said, there, there, there was an agreement among the parties uh, in 1991-92 that there is a need for a limit. 
okay but as to exactly how much should uh be uh, how much should be the limit was was a bone of contention so we should revisit that and then set the ceiling very very clearly um and then also the party should also demonstrate the need you know to receive contributions from individual members if you visit the website of joe biden right now or donald trump right now you will see uh, members making contributions, $5, $2, $10, $15, $100, and, and this is live. And if you visit the Federal Election Commission website of the United States, you can also track how much each candidate has received, how much that they have spent, who exactly contributed uh, to their funds, where the person lives, the kind of job that the person is doing. You know, but if you visit the website of the NPP and NDC, there is almost nothing to suggest that they even need members to make electronic contributions even to their, uh, you know, their, their drive to mobilize money. For instance, I visited the website of the NDC and then the website, they don't have a secure website. If you visit the website of the NPP too, you want to make a donation, uh, it tells you make your check payable to New Patriotic Party, 111 Not A Real Street, any town CA12345, all contributions will be greatly acknowledged. I mean, certainly, wow. this, this, so the, the two even major parties have not demonstrated that they really want to receive donations from members who really want to make transparent electronic contributions. Uh, if you compare that to the attempt that the Ghana COVID 19 fund made, you know, the transparency with which they actually went about mobilizing money and people from all walks of life contributing and within 67 days putting up that Ghana Infectious Disease Center. I believe that it's polit if political parties are also transparent in a similar manner, they should be able to mobilize also such millions of cities for their campaign activities. So one, they should show that, that they really want to even receive monies from ordinary members. And then two, we should have that kind of limit on individual mm. contributions that will force them now to go uh, down there Fantastic. to receive money. Thank you. I think I saw Vera Haibo raise her hand. Vera, if you are there, um, Oliver, can you allow Vera to speak so we, we take a contribution? Uh, Vera, are you, have you been unable to speak? Okay, whilst we wait for that, let me read some comments on our YouTube platform. Uh, Caesar Nonu says, Dr. Kumbo, you are hitting the nail on the head. Our political parties are corruption conduits. Corruption exists because their actions are not regulated properly. Oman Hidijima says, I think the winner takes all system is the source of corruption in this democratic state. And then Ni Spirit says, the winner takes all mentality is something that is built in the foundation of culture and our tradition as a people. And then there are a few more questions coming in on the chat that came through. There was a question about citizen financial contribution to campaigns and whether that affects lack of accountability. I think somebody has addressed that already. There's a, a longish one that I want to read before I take final comments because we have to wrap up. This is from Ernest Osei Afo. And he's asking, Ben, don't you think the structure of our governance system has contributed to the manner in which political activities are funded? For instance, almost every power in the state and appointment is made by the winner without any serious input from CSOs and independent institutions. If the winner stands to gain so much, why not contribute to share if they win? This is Ernest Afo. This is to Kumbo as well. Okay, so we, we are running 
out of time. So what I want to do is to give our panelists a couple of minutes to sort of give us their closing remarks and if there are any things to react to. I'll start with Dr. Pia because I have you now. Your internet is going right. to lose you. So <laughs> what are your concluding thoughts? All right. Thank you very much, Bernard. Uh, the, my closing comment first is that uh, we need a new uh, law on political party financing. Now we need to go beyond even political party financing to say campaign financing because it's not only political parties that are uh, in, involved in, in our elections. And then the law should be very clear in terms of uh, now uh, specifying uh, the details about the sources of funding, because if you speak to EC officials, they seem to say that the law is not very clear, so it limits them. And then secondly, uh, I think that uh, we need perhaps a new body with membership from all the political parties uh, to be in charge of enforcing the rules on political party management. Uh, within the country. And then let's leave the Electoral Commission to be in charge of just organizing the elections. And then tell you that the political parties should also now in this ICT age also create a functioning and secure website where they can sell party paraphernalia and you know, to members that are interested and also where members can also make uh, contributions or donations, just as we saw with the Ghana COVID-19. And then finally, right. we should move away from this winner-take-all to the proportional representative system that many countries even in Africa have adopted. And we see that those countries are making better development progress and creating better and more effective institutions. Thank you. Thank Dr. You. Louise Carroll, Donko, what will be your closing remarks? Please make sure your mic is on. Yeah, so I was saying that you know, I think we can all agree that, you know, some reforms are needed. And for me, whatever reforms, you know, that come up, I'd like to reiterate Sefako's point, which is that instead of don't do this, regulation this and that, we should use it to promote good things. And in using that to promote good things, you know, we need to be able to bring, I think Ghana, we're looking forward to having a third force in our political system. And so if we are to consider public funding of, you know, uh, political parties, that is a way that we can, you know, rope in a third force or a fourth force, you know, into the political system. And of course, we should promote the good things by also, you know, being more gender diverse, using policy, using state financing or public financing or whatever eligibility, you know, criteria that we will set up to promote gender diversity and more bring in, you know, um, more women into the political field. But of course, not only women, the youth as well, people with disabilities and all other marginalized, you know, groups in Ghana. Thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Kumbo, your closing thoughts? Please put on your mic when I call you. Your mic is off, please. Am I clear now? Yes, go ahead. Yes. The first is that we will have to go back and operationalize Article 55 of the Constitution that require that political parties observe internal democracy within their structures. And if we operationalize internal democratic practices in all its ramifications, the issue of integrity and probity would become very central in the political parties. And we have to kill this syndrome 
in which a political party is divided between shareholders and stakeholders. The second thing is that uh, we, we need to clarify some aspects of what the political party is before we rush to whether it should be publicly funded. Is it a, a private association of people? Is it a public institution? We, we need to get a very clear idea of what this political party is or what, what the nature of the political party is. If public funds are to be spent on it, then it will fit the definition of a public institution in which it can be held accountable under public law regulatory framework as we have. But there are a number of things we need to do with the existing law before we go for a full-blown other legislation. I can draw your attention to some of the missing links in the law. If you take the idea of a citizen not contributing or not permitted to contribute, the citizen is not defined by the act. So does it include dual citizenship? Even the fact that it's dual citizens who are likely to become the effective launching parts to source foreign money. And that becomes very, very important. If you look at the sanctions regime again under the Political Parties Act, you will find that it's very nebulous, particularly where you will not be taken to have violated the law and committed an offense where a principal officer of the political party is able to show he was unaware of the arrangements that breached a particular provision of the act. It, it, it is still too nebulous to indicate whether it will not be a loophole for principal officers to actually get away with a lot of wrongdoing that you have. And there are many, many more of these that you have. And uh, if we can clean it up, it could be the starting point of law reform in which perhaps you can consolidate and abstract all these statutory and uh, constitutional provisions into a more detailed and elaborate uh, uh, law on political party financing, perhaps devoting an entire part to the mechanics of the best practices of a number of political parties as we have. But overall, we need a whole idea of situating our the nature of our political party within the nature of our social structure, because that is where the disconnect actually exists. Thank, thank you very much, Dr. Kumbo. Let's take Seth, your, your concluding thoughts. Um, I think I, I would agree with and reinforce much of what uh, Dr. Kumbo said. I think going back to where we started in terms of the need for a much broader conversation about what type of political parties, what type of political system we want. And I think going back to the question about um, the winner-takes-all system, I think part of that can also extend to questions around um, too much um, concentration of power in the executive or in um, the, 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 ruling, the ruling party. I think I've, I've already made this point, but just to reinforce, I think that um, legislation has an important role, but it is just one tool in a broader toolbox. So we have to maintain the focus on civic education, civic engagement. At the end of the day, as citizens, it is, it is about, it's supposed to be about us. So we also have to take some responsibility um, and perhaps, you know, with assistance with, you know, partners in, in government or international development partners in terms of 
um, again, going back to Dr. Kumbo's point about unlearning old behaviors and learning new ones. But part of it also is that we have to actually practice democracy, which means we, we have to engage as citizens wherever we are in terms of shaping things and shaping the kinds of behaviors that we want to see. I think the point that Dr. Kumbo also made about internal party democracy is, is very important. And part of that is also a way of addressing um, the, the political financing issue in the sense that if I'm a member of a party, I should have um, access to um, information about what kinds of money my political party has raised and how they are using um, that, that money as a tool for accountability, but also as a way of broadening participation or if you will, ownership um, of, of, the, of, the, of the political party. And then finally, if I may, just to come back to this point of um, citizen um, engagement, I want to end with uh, a quote by, by John Lewis, um, may, he, may he rest in peace. And in his last message to the United States, um, he, he said among other things, and I quote, Democracy is not a state. It is an act, and each generation must do its part to help build what we call the beloved community, a nation and world society at peace with itself. And if I can just tie that back to where we started with Dr. Kumbo, who said, it's about us. And by us, I mean citizens, no matter whether you're in Ghana, the United States, or wherever else, it's about us. Thank you. Wow, thank you very much. Let me bring in HKP as the, uh, the super sub <laughs> to tie the loose ends for us because we're hoping to have you from the beginning. So happy you joined us. So I, 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 because of all the work you do in civil society at CDD, I feel you're in a good position to give us some sort of what next, okay? What next for reform and so what for whatever we do, whether it's constitutional or whatever. So, Please let your concluding comments be in a, in a form of a what next, big three or four for us to work with. Thank you. Sure, thanks. I, I think it's, it's a good beginning. I mean, the fact that we are beginning to discuss this question at the citizen level and, um, and also at the party level. I mean, we, we, uh, with Star Ghana, we had a, a forum in, in the northern region uh, before COVID. And what was clear at that meeting in Tamale was, I mean, it was, I mean the, the various parties were represented at that forum, you know, that many, many politicians and the parties themselves are as much a victim of this, you know, as, as they are perpetrators. I mean, we see them as really the ones who are, who are really uh, in the firing line, but there are many of them who really are victims of this practice. And if you listen, as we listen to Dr. Kubo, the kinds of frustrations and the kinds of of, of angst that he's expressing uh, about his experience in politics really is widely shared actually by many in politics. So they, they too are actually hostage to this practice, this, this whole idea of just huge volumes of money in politics. And it's really not something that, it's not an us versus them kind of issue. So I think it's good that we are beginning to have this conversation and beginning to at least build some consensus around the issues. I, the second point I want to make is that, you know, fighting uh, money in politics it's a tough issue. Not even in the advanced democracies have they been able to actually get a full grasp of this problem. Uh, whether it's in Germany or it's in the United States, uh, these are still works in progress in those societies. I'm saying that to, to, to make the point that we have to understand that this is going to be a very difficult journey uh, as we proceed to think about reform. 
but it's a journey that we must take for all manner of reasons, not because of just corruption, not because of just state capture, but political party financing and campaign financing generally has a lot to do with many other issues. Um, you know, inclusive, uh, uh, inclusive politics, it has a lot to do with, with uh, you know, just about every issue we can think of has some connection to how parties are financed. So we have to get there. But I think to build confidence in our ability to tackle this problem, we should start with some of the low-hanging fruit issues. So I would start, say, one with internal party democracy. A number of the issues we're discussing actually begin from within the parties themselves. The less and less democratic parties become, the more oligarchs control the parties, the more problems we have with party finance. And so I think that we must begin to subject the party to some real rules here. How much money they charge for filing fees, for example. That's where the practice begins. You know, how much money are they, should they be free to charge for a candidate who wants to contest office in the party? Must we allow parties to impose rules like nurturing the constituency, which actually, if you flesh it out, really boils down to how much money have you spent, you know, uh, before you became a candidate, how much money have you spent making us happy, making the executives happy, keeping us happy, uh, spreading money in the constituency? Where are they supposed to get the money from? So we must subject parties to a lot of discipline uh, as we talk about part, political party financing. So for example, if you said, if you had a rule that said, if, if, if the filing fee is 50,000 CDs, uh, fine, but you must show us that you raised those 50,000 CDs. It's almost like signatures. You must show that you got these 50,000 CDs from so and so many members of the party. It's a different ball game than saying, just come and pay 50,000 CDs, no questions asked. If you rooted the 50,000 CDs in some proof that you have this broad support within the party across regions, and that these number of people in the party contributed to your filing fee, then at least we are beginning to see some kind of regulation here. So internal party democracy is first. I think I go back to Dr. Pierre's point about technology. We really have to begin to deploy the technologies we have now to work at this problem because we have to begin to talk about disclosures and we cannot do them without using technology. So whether it's crowd uh, funding, whether it's um, using biometric information, requiring parties to record and document who actually pays uh, into their coffers or campaigns, not just parties, but campaigns, we need to begin to use the available technology. If we can do this with COVID fund in such a short period, like you said, we can do it with parties. And then I think finally, abuse of incumbency. You cannot seriously talk about campaign financing without talking about abuse of incumbency. It's actually almost the, the flip side of the same thing, right? I, the flip side of the coin, because when a party is in power and they are free, given the kind of you know, system we operate, if the executive is free to really run its campaign with all the VAs at their disposal, with all the state's uh, uh, um, resources at their disposal, and you are not actually funding the opposition or any opposition party, you really are actually unbalancing the equation. here. So when we talk about party and campaign financing, we also need to couple that with 
getting a handle on this problem of abuse of incumbency because otherwise we really cannot address the problem. You cannot fairly, really fairly talk about uh, campaign financing or regulating campaign financing when one participant in, in the campaign already has access to state resources that they can use uh, you know, just freely without any questions asked. So these three issues, internal party democracy, use of technology, and abuse of incumbency, I think places where we can begin uh, to get some initial success so that we can build confidence towards the much bigger issues that are going to come up. Wow. Uh, wow. Thank you, um, Prof. HKP. If they give me a good allowance, I'll share it with you. <laughs> because you have actually done the work for me. So I just need to summarize by thanking the panel members and announcing the next program. So we've been hearing four very distinguished panel members, Dr. Benjamin Kumbo, former member of parliament and former attorney general and minister of justice, former minister for defense, and has also held positions in health and interior. We've also heard from Dr. Luis Carol Donko, a policy and communications analyst on SDGs. She uh, ran for parliament in the MPP primary recently. We also have Seth Ashiabo, senior advisor for political party programs, National Democratic Institute, Washington, DC, and Dr. Daniela Pia, lecturer, University of Ghana Business School. We've been trying to understand uh, campaign financing under the uh, Law in Crisis series organized by the Faculty of Law, University of Ghana. I need to tell you that the next program is on the 24th of August, and they will be discussing access to electoral information and voter engagement under the specter of pandemics. Four very, very interesting panel members, Rhoda Osei Afo, Team Lead, Elections, Rule of Law, and Anti-Corruption, CDD Ghana, Bright Simmons, President of MP Degree, Josephine Nkrumah, Chair of NCCE, Mr. Kotwampao, a lawyer, institutional, and democratic thought leader. Join the conversation by Zoom or by YouTube on uh, the 24th, and we hope you have a great time. A big thank you to Oliver uh, Barker uh, for his great uh, behind-the-scenes support. My name is Bernard Avle. Thank you for being part of this Law in Crisis series. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>